0: This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence against children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: In a perfect world, a child should be able to trust an adult. Children are dependent on adults for healthy food, medical attention, an education, and a safe environment. Children should be able to expect their parents to love them and protect them from any harm. But we don't live in a perfect world. For my guest today, Michael, he and his siblings lived in a small home in Tampa, Florida. They desperately needed protection from harm, but the harm was coming from their parents. It was mostly his mother, Jamie Hicks, and because they were all homeschooled, The abuse went undetected. In our conversation, Michael described some of the things that he and the other children experienced from their abusive mother and their father, who did almost nothing to stop it from happening. There was a time when Child Protective Services was called out and investigated the family, but they weren't able to put the pieces together enough to figure out what was going on in that house so michael and the other older children decided to come up with a plan to escape real people in unreal situations
0: there is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom
2: has been shot. I'm in the, literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you
1: say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you.
2: And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on. And I looked into the garage,
0: and he was hanging from the
2: rafters.
1: I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson. And this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott. And guess what? You're about to hear an ad. And that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads. And I get that. And the good news is you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top click on Try Free, and you're in. On Android, just go to WhatWasThatLike.com/plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode.
3: Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
4: For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points.
3: Sounds like it's time I tried
5: Cheapo Air.
4: Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.
5: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
1: How many kids were in your family?
6: Living at the house, there were eight of us, including myself.
1: And it was mostly boys, right?
6: Yeah, we were actually all boys. Uh, it was the oldest of us, uh, the oldest seven of us were all boys, and the youngest one was a girl. And that's because Jamie, uh, she felt like she wanted to, she felt like she was supposed to have a daughter. And so she kept having kids until she had a daughter. And I guess it just took a long time. You were the oldest. Yeah, I was the oldest, so, yeah, so I got to experience
1: most of it. And you were the only, you were a twin, and it was there was just one set of twins in the family.
6: Yeah, yeah, the, so there's only one set of twins living at the house with the whole family, so I was older than the other twin by about 11 minutes, if that makes any difference in life. And how old are you now? I'm 23 now, I'm getting kind of, 23 and a half, so yeah, I'm getting kind of old,
1: so... What's your earliest memory of your mother?
6: The earliest memory of Jamie is, I had to be about four years older, maybe three. And uh, it was a state visit to see her, a supervised visit. And it was at a McDonald's playground. And we were sitting outside. She was sitting at a bench just talking to us and we were eating some meals. And then we played on the slide a little bit. And at the moment, I didn't truly know who she was. I knew that she was my mother, but I didn't know what her mom was. This was, this was like the first time I actually saw her. So I didn't truly really know who she was. I just knew to call her mom, and that's about it.
1: And and she was your biological mother, but wh- why were why were you meeting at a McDonald's? What had happened to precipitate that?
6: We were born in 1998 to Jamie and my biological father in Colorado Springs, and they actually moved down to Florida in the, in the year 2000. And they got divorced, and because of neglect drug use, since she was a heavy drug user at that time, and I believe financial reasons, she lost custody of us, mostly due to neglect. That was around the time I was about two and a half years old. And so she didn't have custody of us for about a few years, up until I was about four is when she had custody of us.
1: And so she got custody back again, but your dad was still in Colorado?
6: No, so he was also down in Florida as well. He didn't have custody of us as well, although we did have visits with him, and they were unsupervised visits. Now, I don't think they were supposed to be unsupervised visits because I'm pretty sure this was supervised. However, though, the foster mother watching over us, we grew up calling her grandma Didi, she was very good friends with my father. Like, they very good friends and everything like that. So if there were supposed to be supervised visits, she, she that wasn't really kept up to. So we would often go to the airport and just watch the planes take off in his car. That's some of the first memories I have of him.
1: And I understand that your biological father was actually also a pedophile.
6: Yeah, yeah, he has a history of that. As far as I know, I've talked to his mother recently, actually very recently. I've gotten in contact with his mother and his family. And it seems like that's just something he's had a trouble with for a very long time, since a young age, a very young adult. I'm not too sure the whole reason why. I believe it has something to do with his biological father, who wasn't a nice guy as far as I know. But he actually lost custody to some other kids much older than me that I didn't know about until, honestly, until like a year ago because of these reasons and then he also had trouble with this while i was a kid as well so led to some personal experiences with that
1: did he abuse his own kids that way
6: yeah yeah it wasn't physical abuse like not in the sense of beatings but more of sexual abuse I guess best way to explain this is so. Like one day I woke up. It was a Saturday because we had weekend visit with them. I woke up and I went on the computer because we played we played like Cartoon Network games and everything like that. You know, just Cartoon games, whatever young kids did. And I remember a file was open and I saw a picture of myself and my younger brother and we were naked together on in the bed and we we were like sleeping. And this really confused me because I would never do that. And so my father saw that and I got visibly upset with him and and he kept joking off oh you guys fell asleep like that and I was very upset because I was like no I, I would never do that but I guess at that age I was around eight years old I don't know it just didn't really click in my head to be honest I just kind of took his word for it but I was embarrassed about it but when I was around 10 years old I woke up in the middle of the night to go get some water and I walked into the bedroom the way that the house was laid out we had to walk through a bedroom to get to the kitchen and everything walked into the bedroom he was naked over my brother who was sleeping. I remember he yelled, get the fuck out of here. And he was very upset and that scared me. I ran, into, I ran into the living room actually and I just like hid under a blanket on the couch. And after like a few minutes, he came out and asked me what I wanted. And I said, and I made a lie. I said, I had a nightmare so I just want to come be next to you. So he said, okay, you can come be next to me. So I was in his bed and I was laying next to him. And it was really hard to fall asleep because, you know, I, I didn't really know what to make of what I just saw and now I'm in the same bed. Yeah, that's some personal experience I guess with that.
1: When Jamie got custody of you again, there was an incident with Child Protective Services in 2013. Yes. What, what happened there?
6: If you read any news articles, it might even bring that up and and they say for unknown reasons it was closed. Well, I know the reason because I was there when everything happened. One of the younger brothers got Mercer on his arm. And, you know, it's a pretty serious infection if you don't get it treated with. On his hand, actually. And Jamie, she did not want to take any of us to the hospital because, you know, they would see the state we were in. They would see bruises or scars or, you know, we were malnourished. So she decided to try to treat this at home with, she believed, like, butter and baking soda and all this type of stuff could cure most anything. So that's tend to what she fell on. Well, the infection got pretty bad, and I remember the day he went to the hospital, my younger brother. I kid you not, there was like just this big, black, open wound in his hand. It looked horrible. Like, uh, it got so bad that the doctors thought that they might even have to, like, take off a portion of his hand. Thankfully, it didn't come to that, but it was very bad. It was uh, something scary to see as a kid. Anyways, uh, we had to go to the hospital for this, and the nurses, you know, they did the right thing, looked like neglect since uh, since they said to get that bad, I had to be there for a few weeks. They contacted CPS. And I remember I was in the hospital. Uh, this was after my younger brother just had a surgery to fix his hand and everything. I remember I was in the hospital and I was on his bed and I was just talking to him. You know, I was curious what it was like to have surgery. You know, I was just a curious person. And Jamie quickly walked into the hospital room and she said, go to your bed, read a book, no dessert." And I was so confused what she, what she meant by that. At the time, I thought she meant, like, if I didn't get off his bed, I was going to get in trouble. So I got off his bed, and, you know, like, I didn't know what she meant by that. And then I saw some two young females come in. They had to be around my current age, maybe 24. They had to be very young.
1: And those were the Child Protective Services people?
6: Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, they identified themselves to us, and I immediately knew why Jamie came in and told us that stuff. And they they had to sit down on the couch in the hospital room younger brother was and they just want to ask her some questions and the whole time jamie was behind them just nodding their head they asked us when you get if you ever get in trouble what do you do first they asked us uh if you knew what a lie was you know they asked is the sky blue or you're And obviously said "We're a boy and that's a lie you know so i'm that's the truth so they identify the truth and lie with us And then they asked us questions, when you get in trouble, what did your mom do? And I immediately knew why she told us. I was like, oh, we either go to our bedroom and read a book or we get no dessert. And like, oh, okay, okay. And did your mom ever hurt you? And this whole time, Jamie was behind them nodding her head. I was like, no, no. And, And they're like, what's the most severe punishment you got? And I was like, "Uh, maybe stand in the corner for a few minutes. So they seemed happy with these results. So they told Jamie that they would come by the house that night to check on the food situation and, you know, to see if the house was clean. Well, Jamie contacted her husband or his significant other, Vernon Lavelle, and they they brought all the groceries that day. Like, they brought a lot of groceries. They made a nice dinner that night. We immediately went home and we scrubbed that house down. Like, Jamie made us, Like, that was the cleanest that house I've ever been in a long time. Of course, they came. Everything looked wonderful to them. The refrigerator and the cabinets were full of food. I don't get how they didn't notice how all that food looked like it was brought that day, but looked good enough to them. Everything was spotless clean, you know. We were all sitting on the couch, nice and neat and quiet, like we should have been, I guess. They asked us all the same questions, but this time all of us together. This time, But Jamie and Werner were still in the background. There was no privacy at all. And then I guess they saw everything was fit, and that was the end of that. And that was in 2013.
1: That just sounds like complete incompetence about how they handled that whole thing
6: it really did make me upset and i remember when i into foster care and the foster people found out about that they felt really bad you know they said that was really poor training they didn't understand how that got past them and you know i'm not holding them I, i don't hold them accountable but there was just a lot of red flags that even i as a kid knew and I didn't have any training or anything like that. Even I, as a kid, knew that they should have at least picked up on something. And I'm not saying it was necessarily their fault. Maybe it was training or don't know. It just wasn't cool.
1: Yeah, but they should do the questioning with her yeah. not there. That seems yeah. so logical.
6: Yeah. So, actually, in 2014, they almost made that same mistake. Uh, it was too different for a CPS woman. And they wanted to question us in the dining room while Jamie was in the kitchen. And the way that the house, it was a small house, so the kitchen, dining, room, like combined. And they wanted to question us in front of Jamie. And it was actually one of my brothers who said, oh, actually, can we go outside? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I remember seeing Jamie's face and I made her visibly upset. But it's like we couldn't let them make that same mistake again.
1: So you actually, you went to a regular school up till sixth grade. What happened when you were in sixth grade?
6: In sixth grade... My biological father passed away and Jamie always wanted to put us in our fa- I mean, our homeschool. But anytime she thought of putting us in homeschool, my biological father, Michael, said that if you went to homeschool, he would get more custody of us and he would have us spend more time over there. Because the whole reason we were having whole like five-day weeks with her is because of school. We were close to school. But, but in homeschool, then we don't have to have only two days with him. So when he passed away, it was February 8th. When he passed away from ultimately a heart attack, well, that didn't hesitate her at all. At the end of the school year, she brought us out into homeschool. And I don't think she did it properly either because the next uh, year, the school called her saying that they thought we were skipping school because we weren't showing up to class. So this was the first time that the school found out that we were actually going into homeschool. And after that, yeah, she had all of us in homeschool.
1: Just the term homeschool indicates that she was teaching you at home. But yeah. how did that work? Did Was there any education going on at all?
6: Uh, yeah, I guess the only education we got there is how to massage her back or something because that's what we did half the time. Yeah, no, there was no education going on whatsoever. So the older three kids, I included myself, we were the only ones who actually went to any public school at any point of our lives, Oliver and Jamie. The younger five kids, they never went to public school. She never had them even go to kindergarten and preschool. They just went immediately into quote unquote homeschool. And there was no education going on there whatsoever. It was mostly we would sit down or do whatever she wanted us to do. There were these textbooks that she did have, though, but it wasn't her teaching us. It wasn't like we had some online class or anything like that. It was mostly us teaching ourselves. And then she would test us on these tests. And if we got something below a 60%, then she would beat us until we got above a 60% or a 70%. And that usually just came by brute force you know like I got a fifty nine percent so that's how I'm just going to answer this differently but you know you know it's not like you're studying it's just you know you're being hit on the back of the head or back or something with a pan so you know there wasn't really any studying going on there and it shows today some of my younger brothers when we got put into foster care and back into public school and showed you know some of them had none of the you know basic knowledge of Kindergarten to go into fifth grade? Is a very important time to go to school, you know,
1: and so they had a lot of catching up to do.
6: Extreme catching up, yeah, all of us.
1: I want to have you talk about or or tell about some of the examples of abuse because they're just just in what I've already heard and what you've written. It's just uh, horrific what she did to all of you kids.
6: Yeah, there was one with the sewing machine. And because she liked to sew, even though she didn't do it often, she liked to teach herself. So we had a sewing machine in the house. And I guess one day she decided that, you know, it would be a good punishment. And the first person to get that punishment was my younger brother. And she put her his hand into the sewing machine. There was no thread or anything like that, but she put it into the sewing machine. And the first time she only had the needle go down once into his finger. And that was it. But after that, you know, uh, I started getting more severe as most punishments did. And she would just have the sword, machine keep on going up his hand. You know, it's very painful, of course. And one time she got mad at me and she put the needle through my nail. I mean, like, I don't know if you ever had something like go through your nail and through your finger, but it really hurts a lot. Like, it's a pretty excruciating pain. And it was really, you know, looking back, I probably could have fought back. But, you know, the punishment would have been a lot worse if I did. But it was really painful and it was really scary. You know, uh, you knew it was coming up to your terms. She would grab your hand and, you know, you'd be crying, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she was like, you know, uh, I know you are. And then she, even though there was really nothing to be sorry about. And she would put our hand under the sewing machine or our fingers, whatever she decided to do. And then she would just have the needle do its work. So that was that. I was eight years old. It was 2006 Easter Sunday. I remember because we were getting all we were all getting ready for church and Easter service. So we we took these multivitamins that she gave us, you know, supposed to make us, you know, healthy and everything. And my younger brother forgot to get his. I don't know I right, how he got to get his, but he did somehow. And this made Jamie very upset. So she grabbed a cup of orange juice and tried to shove the pills down the store because she was angry at him. And you know, of course orange juice went all over the floor because uh he had no control over this. And this made her even angrier. So she started banging the back of his head onto the corner of the kitchen. There was a, a corner wall. And she started banging the back of his head on him with his head. And just like yelling, going nonstop. She had no uh, restraint with this. You know, all of a sudden, he just fell to the ground. Like he almost lifeless. And it was really scary. That was the first time I actually cried. watching of my brothers get beat. And you could see the tear in her eyes. It was this is probably the few times I actually saw Jamie afraid and she just starts looking at him like yelling at him and slapping him in the face you know I don't know if she thought that would work but whatever and then she actually brought him into her bedroom and you just she closes the door behind us and she just like you hear her yelling breathe breathe that scared me I was like what like is he not breathing or something and then after a while uh you know she came out and everything and uh, she only had a bra and underwear on. I don't know if she was trying to like heat up his body or something like that, but she went in there fully clothed and she came out with only a bra and underwear on. So I'm not really sure what happened there, but like I so said, the door was closed. But my brother, he was just standing there and he was just shaking and like he wasn't really saying anything. And I asked him, I was, I, I was like, are you okay? And like he just looked at me. He was just shaking. And I was like, do you know what happened? And he said, no, I, I don't know what happened. And I was like, I was like, do you know where you are? And he's like, and he just looked at me he's shook and he was really quiet and then finally probably a few minutes later once Jamie was done with him I asked him if he remembered what happened he said he had no idea what happened like he just he said he just remembers being standing up and like he doesn't know what's happening he's just in a lot of pain and I asked him if I wanted to make sure he actually knew who we were and he said he knew everywhere and like he knew where he was but to this day he has no memory of that I sometimes I ask him about him like do you remember it and like he says no and before that day, he doesn't have a lot of amuse either. And it really did mess up with him, to be honest. Mentally, it messed up with him. He's, I shouldn't say he he's not like mentally ill. He's a good kid and like you can have really good conversations with him and he can keep a job. But he's just a little bit, I, I guess the kindest way I can put it, he's just a little bit slow, if that makes sense. So his mentality, as the doctor said, would never be that of past a seventh grader. And I I link it to that case. He was perfectly normal before that, and then after that, he just I don't know, just really messed up with him. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. That was nothing new. That was one of the first things that she did to us as a first punishment. I remember the first time she did that to us was when I was about five years old. It was very shortly after she got custody of us. Uh, I could not have been more than a few months. The first time I remember we were trying, we were taking a bath. And she was angry at us because I think we were dirty or something like that. It was just after church and we got dirty and we spilled chocolate milk or something on ourselves and she got angry. And so she just shoved uh, my head underwater, water and I'm even freaking out and she would like bring out my head and just shove it back underwater. water. And this made me very afraid of the bathroom like when I was near her. This made me petrified of it. She thought I was afraid of the shower or something like that but no, I was just afraid of her like putting my head on the water. And after that she never really did stop. Uh, sometimes if there was like Dirty dishes. Uh, she would fill up the sink and then shove our heads under water, and this would be for a while. I'm talking about like you know, for the first few seconds, we wouldn't fight back. You know, thinking, hoping that she would bring our heads up. If you fought back, you could get in a lot of trouble, especially if you accidentally touched her. But you know, sometimes she would keep our heads under there way too long. Like I literally could not breathe. You know, you can't breathe underwater, and so you know, you you would fight back. I'm talking about putting your hands on the sink and your legs on like your feet on the cabinet, like just trying to push yourself back. But being a small boy, you know, and she was around, she was a pretty big woman, couldn't really push her away. It was pretty tough. And so then that was really scary. And I think the scariest part of being underwater, maybe being on water, so I think I was about nine and we were in the bathroom and she like put the shower curtains around me and then threw me in the tub of water. And when you're in the tub of uh, water, you know, like if you would put like a plastic bag over your hand and you put it water, you know, it. It uh, confines to your hand because of the weight of the water. The water was coming into the shower curtain, and I could not move. I was freaking out, and like I was yelling for her to help me. I was just yelling for her, but finally she did drag me out of the water, and then you know beat me. But uh, she did that to all of us, so that wasn't a. uh, It was a very common punishment if there was water around.
1: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the green goddess falafel bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have CookUnity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing.
3: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code WHAT or going to cookunity.com slash WHAT.
1: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels, and thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
3: Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25 what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25 what. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
4: For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points.
3: Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air.
4: Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.
6: This uh, was mostly for us little people. You know, when we were younger, when we got older, it did not as much because we got too big for the boxes. But for the younger kids, that would still be an issue. But she would put us. it was like these blue tubble rears. I mean, like those moving boxes and they were blue and everything. I'm not sure how many gallons they were, but she would have us go inside of them and then she would put the lid and sit on top of it. And I'm talking about like we were cramped in there wasn't like I could sit up or anything. Like it, it was a small box after all. And plastic box. And she would just sit on it and like, I am freaking out. It would get so hot so fast. I was getting a hard time breathing. Like I would freak out. Like I would like try to push her, but she was a heavy woman. I was a small, weak child, so I couldn't do anything. Like, I would be yelling for her, like, please, please, I don't want to do this. Like, I'm sorry, and everything like that. And she would just laugh. And she did that a few times. There was a lot of times, actually. But like I said, as I got bigger, like, once I started getting tall and everything like that, she wouldn't do that uh, so much anymore because I couldn't fit in a box. But she would still do that to the younger kids. So it was a uh, it was a traumatic experience that makes me claustrophobic to this day. My first memory of Jamie abusing us is this was before kindergarten. So like I said, she officially got custody of us just a few months before kindergarten. So I remember going back to school fairs, and like getting a backpack and everything. So it was very uh, soon before kindergarten. We were in the bathroom and everything like that. I don't know why, what caused this, but she was very angry. She had us sit in the bathtub and then she literally had us... Our younger brother, who was still an infant at the time, he was still in you know the car seats and everything. She shoved his Sawyer diaper in, in our face and like she had us eat it. And it was, I doubt you know you really care, but the best way to describe the taste is if you ever put a nine-volt battery on your tongue and you get like that kind of electrified taste of like battery acid or whatever. That's what it tastes like. It was really horrible. And she did that many more times. We got a dog eventually, and she we had to eat the dog crap sometimes. There was puke that we had to eat. I guess the best memory from that is one of my younger brothers stole a uh, can of raisins because he was hungry. And so then Jamie made him eat the whole thing, but like very fast. Not just like, you know, oh, take your time. But, you know, like shoving it down his throat to made him puke. And he puked a lot. And then she made him puke into a bowl and they made him drink all of it. And if he puked it back up, he, had, he could not stop until he drank all of it, even if he puked it back up. And it's a really disgusting sight. It's, like, it's, a, it's a disgusting memory, that's for sure. There was moldy food and everything, so there was it just it was a never ending cuisine with her, I guess
1: it's so it's incredible that when you mention moldy food, it's like that, wow, that's nothing,
6: yeah, yeah, you know it tasted bad, but it was better than I don't know even eating cop, I guess you know,
1: did I read correctly that there was one time when one of your siblings was tied to a bed for a whole week? Mhm,
6: yeah, yeah, and it wasn't the only time it happened to him. When I went through the weekends to my father, Jamie took the brunt of the force on just one of the kids, one of my younger siblings. And she would beat him a lot, like very hard. I'm talking about, like, you know, he's a lucky kid that he doesn't have lasting damages, at least not mentally or anything. But so she would, like, just beat us. And then if we got too badly, you know, injured or something, like we couldn't move our arms or legs, or like if we looked like we just got out of a car crash, she would tie us to the bed to, you know, take care of us. I guess you could say it wasn't really taking care of us, but the best way she knew how. She would put like butter on our bruises because she thought that that would cure the bruising. With one and then she would like feed us too, and we would be tied onto the bed. By the way, it's not like we were on a bed; vest. we were just tied onto the bed and blindfolded in some cases. And she would feed us. In this case, him. She would feed him, but she would like punch him in the face or slap him with an open palm, with a closed palm. I meant. Every time she gave him a bite and the way I see it is she she did that because she wanted to let him know that I'm only doing this because I don't like, because I have to, not because I want to. And so she just kept beating him and he was blindfolded and everything. And she would position the bed so that way Vernon Sr. wouldn't walk into the house and see that because we didn't have doors on our bedrooms. And I remember I came home on Sunday and I saw him on the bed. I mean, that wasn't something new. You know, I was curious what happened this time. And I asked him, I was like, you know, I kind of whispered to him because Jamie was downstairs and I said, hey, are you okay? And he just said, no, he wasn't okay. And he kind of, he was crying a little bit. And like, he was naked by the way. We usually tie down to the bed naked. It wasn't like we were clothed or anything like that. So he was naked and everything. And, And Jamie was just very upset for some reason, like always, I guess. And she just started beating him hard. And so he had to stay on the bed longer it was like every time she saw him she was got even angrier so she just kept beating him so he was on the bed for so long it was from one friday to the next monday it was a it was quite a long time because i remember going back to my father's and he was still on the bed i'm pretty sure that brings up a question to anyone listening to this you know why didn't i tell my father fear just really gets to the best of you i was always told growing up that If we told anybody, they would just laugh at us, you know, because it's embarrassing that she had to punish us this way. I guess when you're told that most of your life, you kind of believe it. So, just want to put that out there.
1: Was any of her abuse against any of you of a sexual nature at all?
6: Yeah, yeah. So, she sexually abused us a lot. And I don't think it was for her own sexual pleasure. I just think it was because it was a power thing and, you know, made us feel embarrassed. The most common one that she did is she would just have us stand naked. And I don't know what she got off on this, but she, we would literally just stand naked in front of her. Like she would be on the computer playing games. She would just have us come in and she would say, strip. And when she said that, I mean, you know, take off your clothes. And then we would just stand there and you can't move until she says anything. And so, you know, that's pretty embarrassing, you know. And we would be there sometimes for, I think the longest I remember standing up, uh, being naked in front of her was from... It was early morning. The sun was just rising in Florida until around 1 a.m. that night. And Verena would sometimes see us and, like, you know, he would kind of like just like laugh and he would ask Jamie, why are they, why are they naked? Uh, boys, go put on some clothes. And so we go put on some clothes. And then, you know, as soon as he was gone, because he worked a lot, uh, Jamie would tell us, to come back and strip. And I don't know why she did that, but that was like, as in terms of sexual abuse, that was, that was easy, I guess, because what she would do is, she would sometimes have us lift up our our penis, I guess, and she would get a switch. It was usually a rubber switch, or sometimes it would just be a stick even, and just hit us on the testicles and everything. You know, very painful, as you can imagine, being a guy yourself. Or sometimes she would have... She one time had my younger brother touch my other youngest brother's uh, genitals and everything. Or sometimes she would, like, grab us really hard on around the testicles and just squeeze really hard. And so, you know, very... So, like I said, I don't think she got it for her own sexual pleasure. I just think it was an embarrassing power
1: thing she If there was ever a definition of a monster yeah that that's her yeah and you you mentioned Vernon, he lived in this house mm-hmm. was he unaware of any of this, or did he kind of just you know he looked the other way?
6: No, he was aware of it, he definitely knew what was happening. So, like, and it got progressively worse and worse with Jamie. And, like, I remember first he would tell Jamie never to hit us in the face, you know what I mean? Because, you know, he was a pretty strict man, so he did believe in spankings and everything. Even though I wouldn't classify these as spankings, you know, he believed in them. But, you know, as Jamie got worse, he just kept turning more and more blind eyes to what he used to not be okay with. So, you know, before he used to say never hit them in the face. But then, you know, Jamie would keep hitting us in the face and, you know, he just kind of ignored that. Or, or he would... T- I guess the best way to explain this is it was one of the first houses we were living at Jimmy with. It was a pretty run down apartment in kind of southern Tampa, And she was beating my younger brother very hard. Like and like at this time by the way, he was only four years old, so a very young boy, and she was just beating him nonstop. Like I don't know how much more he could take of that. And so he got angry at her and he grabbed him and put him next to himself. I he watched Western shows all the time, cowboy movies and everything. And he would not let Jamie come near him. And he had him sit next to him for a while because he felt like he had to protect him. However, you know, things going on, he eventually wouldn't do that anymore, because I guess he just turned a blind eye. There was sometimes after some extremely bad, you know, Jamie would put makeup on us to cover up, you know, the scratches and bruises and everything like that. And Vernon told her not to put makeup on us because it just makes it seem more obvious and everything. And, you know, if he saw us with makeup on, you know, he would come up and, like, he would wipe the makeup off my face. And he'd be like, boy, did your mother put makeup on you? And I was like, yes, sir. And, you know, he got upset at Jamie, but eventually he didn't care too much about that. One time he even threatened to call 911 on her, but she grabbed his phone. It was a flip phone and sat on it and would not move. And that was the last time I really saw him actually try. I think he knew what was going to happen, though. I remember the last day before everything happened, before she got arrested. He was just holding uh, the youngest daughter, and he told Jamie that it was over and that, you know, they were going to have some hard times.
1: Well, let's talk about when you started to plan how to get away. How did you start to plan that?
6: Yeah, so it was 2013, it was the end of 2013, around December. The older four of us, eventually the older five, because we talked to our little brother about it, and, you know, he agreed that he wanted to go with us. We decided we wanted to run away. We were like, we're done with this, you know, like, we can't just wait until 18 to move away because we're not going to live till 18. Like, things were just getting progressively worse, you know? She was, uh, Jamie was just getting more and more progressively, uh, dangerous. So what we would do is we would sneak out of the house, actually. Jamie doesn't know this, but we would sneak out of the house and like, you know, see how far away we could get within a certain time period. There was a cooking, uh, timer that Jamie had, you know, for when cooking food sometimes, even though that was never used. And we used that to time ourselves, how far we can get in 10 minutes, you know, what, about 15 minutes even. And literally just kind of scoping the area out and we went. And eventually we found some train tracks a few blocks away from Jamie's place. And we decided that's where we'd go. We'd go into those train tracks and we'd go north. We'd go northbound on the train tracks. Being someone who didn't have a lot of information, this was a really dangerous thing because we didn't really plan ahead you know It was kind of just a heat in the moment type thing but at the time my mentality didn't really think of that you know you know I didn't really grow up in the most uh, knowledgeable place and so we decided that we would go and pack some backpacks with you know some money and everything like that you know we took some money out of the cabinets and everything and we put some food in it and everything like that and we got a knife for defense you know as silly as that sounds you know that's just what, how we thought back then and we put it in the backpack and we decided, you know, uh, we didn't have any day planned. We just decided when we do this, we're going to do this. And we hit the backpack and everything. We had three backpacks actually, but we hit the backpacks. And we decided we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Two of us going to away at first. So that way, you know, if all five of us go missing at once, Jamie isn't suspicious. We decided that I and my twin would stay behind because she's, we were the one she called the most to like do something for her. The plan was that they would go to the train tracks and they would run up a few blocks from the train tracks and wait there for us. And we told them, you know, it could take up to 40 minutes, depending if we have to do something real quick, but just wait for us. And if if you're not there by then, just keep going. We'll eventually, we'll catch up to you because, you know, we planned the route. We we'll say we'll stick close to the uh, train tracks. so There's no way you can falter from that. Like I said, it. I'm glad that we got caught because honestly, that's a really dangerous strategy. But, you know, I just don't think we didn't think that far.
1: But you had to take a risk, yeah. Yeah. And you, you left some notes all around the house mm-hmm. as well, right? What was that? Yeah,
6: so uh, it was actually my brother's idea to do that, you know, and I decided, you know, to help him. We left notes around that house. We left one on the VCR, one on my younger brother's pillow. We left one behind the computer in this study room, even though it was not used for studying. And we left one in the kitchen on top of the refrigerator. And these notes basically said, I'm sorry, mommy, I'm running away because I don't like it when you kick and choke me. And we tried our best to write it in our younger brother's handwriting. She eventually found out it was us who wrote that because we wrote it in pen, and I hate using pencils, and I was the only one who used pens to write. So she eventually found out that it was actually I who wrote that, but, you know, oh well. The hope was that, you know, if if she called the cops that she would have to do eventually, you can't just have your kids go missing and not do anything about that, you know? that the cops would see those. So we had the two younger brothers run, and it was like really fast. Within two minutes, Jamie wanted all of us in the study room right that minute. And it was in the morning when we ran away. Right? And so I was like, oh crap, this isn't good. The study room pointed towards the street that the younger brothers had to run past. You know, so we said, "You know, when you get to that street, you just have to sprint. She cannot be looking out the window, you know what I mean? And so sure enough, when I got to the study room, I literally saw them going down the street. I'm like, oh... But Jamie was looking at the computer. So, you know, they were okay. She got addicted to gaming in her five, past few years. So she wanted, she's like, where are the other two? And so I said, Oh, one of them is in the restroom. And the other one who was her favorite child is watching TV, but she, she's usually totally okay with that. Cause like I said, that was her favorite child, but, uh, she wasn't that time. She wanted them. And then finally, like after a few minutes, she's like, where are they? And I, and I was like, I, I don't know. I can't find them right now. And then she freaked out. She's like, what do you mean you can't find them? She got up and she stopped looking for them. And she freaked out and she yelled. I remember she went out the back door and she like yelled at the top of her lungs for, uh, for the name. At this point, they were too far gone for them to hear her. So I was like, you know, I just, hopefully, you know, she doesn't catch them because she catches them. we some major, like, we're some major shit, that's for sure. She called Vernon immediately and he got off work immediately to come look for them. And she called the police probably about two hours after they went. Missing, according to her. And the police took the time to come. I'm not going to lie about that. The, the police didn't come to like two hours after she called. And she told the police, Oh, I think they might just be hiding because they probably think I'm angry at them or something, but I just want them. I just want to make sure they're safe. I don't care if they play. It's like, oh, okay, okay, Jamie, sure, whatever. You know, like obviously that's a lie, but you know, she seemed like a kind woman at first. And then like eventually the police, like the police were having a tough time finding them because they were, far. They walked to the Pasco County line. They were like past the Hillsborough County line. So they walked
1: pretty far. How far was that do you, in like in distance? Do you know?
6: Well, let's see. we were living in Southern Tampa. So all the way up to the northern part of the Hillsborough line. It was many miles, that's for sure. I can't remember the exact mileage,
1: but it was it was a long distance, that's for sure. Quite a distance for a couple of little kids to go on their own.
6: Yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, they had fun though. I remember talking to them about it and they said they saw some cows. They pet a cow and everything. Enjoy the walk. They got some McDonald's. So they, they seemed to enjoy the outing. But yeah, so the cops wanted to look at the house. You know what I mean? They wanted to look for clues. And one cop, it was a female cop who talked to Jamie outside. And then these two male cops came inside the house and they were looking, you know, what I'm thinking, you know, these notes are pretty, like we, we purposed of these notes where they would be noticeable. But they didn't quite get them. You know, they were about to walk outside the home and everything like that. Cause we brought up the fact that we remember seeing my younger brother writing a note and they were like, okay, we've signed this note, give it to us. And they walk on the home. I remember I was kind of freaking out. I was like, oh no, they, they can't leave now. So my younger brother, my twin, he grabbed one of the notes and he's like, Oh, look, I found it. And the uh, officer immediately came. He looked and Jamie was still outside. So she had no idea about this. And he looked at this note and like he just looked at like his eyes got big and like he was nodding his head and he was like, thank you. Thank you a lot, guys. And he went outside and I'm surprised Jamie let us be in the house alone with those cops. But I guess he was too busy talking to the other cop. Maybe that was all the plans. I don't know. I remember uh, he showed it to the other cops. And then the female cop, if I remember correctly, it was the female cop who, who showed Jamie that letter. And, and she's like, well, "What, what is what is this making out? And she was like, I have no idea. I would never hurt them. And we were sitting in the minivan at the time because we were supposed to, she wanted us to go to – we were about to drive off to the church because she wanted to pray with the pastors and everything like that. I'm not sure if they really knew about the abuse, but, you know, whatever. But she came up to into the minivan, and she, like, looked at us, and she was very angry, vividly angry. And she, like, like in a low moan, she she whispered to us, why the hell did you guys give that to me? You guys should have given that to me. I would have shredded that up and threw that in the trash can. But like the female officer heard that. And she said, excuse me, what was that again? And she's like, oh, nothing. And like, I remember thinking like, oh, this is like too, this is too good to be true. And so eventually they found the boys, thankfully, that's a story in and of itself. But they found the uh, younger brothers. They got us all home and they knew that there was red flags. There was like, there wasn't just like one or two cops. There was like four or five cops in that house, if I remember correctly and they talked to us each one on one outside away from her on the front porch about everything that you know they
1: wanted us to just be truthful with with them and so your plan actually worked
6: yeah not in the way we intended for it too, but it worked nevertheless so we failed successfully
1: yeah yeah <laughs> so. so where were you taken from there i mean some of you must have had visible injuries at that point yeah right?
6: The night that the cops came, actually, was not the night we were taken away. We weren't taken away for two other days because the next day, CPS came, you know, and then the day after that, we went to this nonprofit home. I came in with the name off the top of my head, and that's where, like, physicians and everybody looked at us. And, you know, the, I remember the one of the first things they said when they saw me, you know, when they brought me to the room by myself was, was, wow, you look uh, really skinny. Those pants look pretty big on you, don't they? And, like, I kind of shrugged it off. I, I did not know how skinny I looked into I Looking back at my pictures that they took of me back then, I have a hard time looking at those pictures because I did not know I looked like that. I knew I was skinny, but I didn't. The best way I can say I I look like money, a mummified skeleton to be honest.
1: You were how old at that time? Sixteen. I was
6: sixteen. Yeah, I was sixteen and, years old.
1: What was your weight at age sixteen? Yeah,
6: I was eighty four pounds. So you know, really light.
1: And just be, you just weren't literally weren't being fed sufficiently. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. I Just wasn't being fed. There was literally times in my life I can remember going weeks without food and you know some people might think that sounds like an exaggeration but no I'm not joking I say like I went weeks without it and it's not because you know it's not because I didn't choose to feed myself it's because I couldn't you know like Jamie tried to use that excuse that you know oh we just wouldn't eat it's like well if you gave me food of course I'm going to eat
4: I'm hungry.
6: So we went to the hospital. They drove us. You know, I remember we, the cops. started to go on tangent, but you know the cops. I, I asked, you know, are we going to go back to James' place, and they said, no, you're not going to go back for a long time, and you may never, you may never go back. And I was happy.
0: Right now in Tampa a couple behind bars tonight accused of starving a pair of teenagers so badly they're in the hospital investigators here at TPD right now are comparing this case to being almost like an onion they say the more and more they peel back the layers the more chilling the more disturbing the abuse gets now this all reportedly happened at an East Tampa home The children ranging in age from two on up to 16 years old. Police say that they were tipped off about this when two of those children ran away earlier this week. They were trying to protect themselves. Two of the other siblings, 16-year-old twin boys, are now in the hospital. Both were told weighing less than 100 pounds. Doctors who examined them say they should have at least weighed 135. Their mother, Jamie Hicks, and their stepfather, Vernon Lavelle, are now behind bars. They had been slapped. They had been choked to the point where they couldn't breathe. They had been kicked, punched in the stomach. Their head had been held underwater. They uh, were forced to eat old and moldy food. When they would throw it up, the mother would then make them eat their vomit. Police say this abuse likely went unnoticed because all of those children were homeschooled and they were rarely allowed outside.
6: And they asked, "Hey, do you want some Panda Express?" And I had no idea what the heck Panda—I literally had no idea what Panda Express was. I didn't know what anything was, and I—I and I was like, "I don't know what that is." But they gave it to me, anyways. And then they said, "Hey," uh, they pointed me to this one woman. She was a black woman and everything, and she was a very kind woman. She was talking to us, but you know, I didn't really know how to respond, and you know, I just came out of a situation. And she—we got into this black to this black car with tinted windows and everything, and she's driving. I was like, "Where are we going?" She's like, uh, "You have to go to the hospital. Uh, you guys weren't doing too well." And I just remember looking out the window, like at we were in downtown Tampa at that point, and I was like, wow, like this is, I honestly could not believe it was truly happening. And we were taken to Tampa General Hospital, and that's where we stayed for the next few weeks. We were supposed to stay there for two months, but we convinced the doctors that we were doing well enough after a while to, you know, I missed my brothers, I want to go live with them, you know?
1: But that was kind of your your first taste of freedom.
6: yeah. I honestly sometimes tell, like, I honestly sometimes think that this was probably the best memory of my life. Maybe even not down to get my wedding, but maybe even better than my wedding, because like it was just I could really experience everything. But like I, I was very you know It was like, man, what can't I do now? But you know, i remember going to the hospital, and they came and they brought us menus to eat. You know, we were put on a pretty strict diet. You know, eventually we had to start the first day at four hundred calories and six hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, we went all the way up to like three thousand five hundred calories. So eventually, you know, it was like literally just, we would have two breakfasts, two lunch, and two dinner meals. So, you know, I was happy eating whatever I wanted. I ate a, I ate a lot of chocolate cake, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but uh, I remember being in the hospital, and, like, I turned on the TV, and, like, I was like, this the first time I turned on the TV without being afraid or anything like that. Like, I was watching, like, these, you know, shows and everything. And these music videos, there was this channel for these music videos, and it was like, one of the music was like, let's see, there was Bulletproof. There was What Does the Fox Say and a few other music uh, videos. And like, I love these musics to these days because, you know, uh, it brings back memories. I remember looking outside of the hospital window because we were like on a pretty tall floor. We were like on the 14th or 15th floor. We were pretty tall up. And I remember looking out like at the whole entire like Tampa Bay and everything at the hills, you know. And I was so happy. I was like, wow, like we actually did it. And going to bed that night was like, I went to bed a lot easier than I thought I would. I fall asleep pretty fast. I was a tired person.
1: Yeah. You had to be exhausted. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Emotionally and physically. Yeah. It was very exhausting. And I remember waking up and I thought it was at James place. I thought I was on my top bunk at my bedroom and I almost cried. I thought it was all a dream. And then I looked and I saw him, I realized it was in the hospital still. It's like, wow, this really is true. And I remember I literally just like my brother was still sleeping. I woke up and I was just looking at the window. I was like, and I, and like, I just looked out there for a good, like, at least 10 minutes, just, you know, enjoying everything. And I woke up my brother because he was still sleeping. Like, I was like, can't you believe? Like, he got really excited. And, you know, it was just, you know, I was super excited. Eventually, I got really bored of being in the hospital because you can't go for, you know, without a nurse watching you. I, you know, I I was like, okay, this is exciting, but I want to get out, you know. I would call my brothers all the time from the hospital and, you know, they're having so much fun, you know, going bike riding, going to the beach and everything, enjoying school, meeting these new people. It's like, well, shoot, I want some of that. And so we convinced the doctor, who was originally against it at first, but we convinced the doctor that, you know, we're doing well enough and we are continue, you know, doing better. So just let us go. And, you know, so eventually he agreed on it. He said, you know, if we didn't continue getting better, then we have to come back to the hospital. But we continue getting better.
1: So the next thing was what happened legally yeah. with Jamie and Vernon. What happened when they were arrested?
6: Yeah, so a lot of things happened when they were arrested. there was a lot of, we had to talk to a lot of people, you know, Doctors and everything like that because they had a lot of legal questions and everything. The day that they were arrested, they were immediately booked into the Hillsborough County Jail. You know, innocent until proven guilty, but you know, uh, they were booked with, without bail at first. Eventually, the bail was set, but Jamie's bail was so high it, would, it couldn't be paid. There was a ton of questions. I remember seeing the video of them getting arrested, of Jamie at least getting arrested. I didn't see Vernon get arrested, but Jamie was like in a small conference room and she was crying. She was like nonstop crying, just tears falling down her face and everything and they could barely get any words out of her because she just couldn't stop crying and eventually they told her you know just stand up and you know they put handcuffs behind her back and escorted her out of the room i was through a live feed cam i saw that and jamie was very i i guess as they described very hysterical and almost delusional is how they saw it because just non-stop crying i guess i was a fit that happened for a few days and they decided that she had to be put in a mental hospital until she could really calm herself because they felt that she didn't even know why she was uh, in trouble. They felt like she wasn't ready to stay on trial. So they put her in a mental hospital and, th- and she was in there for a while. I remember she was in there even after her parent rights got taken away. But that was a long process. Her parents, you know, t- tons of lawyers and everything like that. Her lawyers kept trying to say that, saying that uh, she still didn't understand that her meds weren't working correctly. And so then finally, many months later, near the end of the year, we went back to Florida because before this, we left Florida to go live somewhere else. We went back to Florida to go to the parent case. This was the family court to make them because the first step before we could do anything is we had to have the parent rights separated. You know, we couldn't really move on with our lives too well without that because because their parents, they still legally had some say in stuff, even though it was literally thrown out the window. They they could still object to stuff, but like I said, it had no power. And so then that was a week-long case. I was the first one called up on the stand to give my testimony. Uh, So because of that, I got to watch all my other brothers give their testimony. Jamie was not there in person. She was there via like Skype or something from the jail, because she was transported from the mental hospital to the jail so she could be in court, and then she transported back. So since I was the first one, I got to see Jamie and she was very quiet. She just looked down the whole entire time. Like her face was looking at the camera, but her eyes were just looking down at the table the whole time. And when I was done giving my testimony in court and everything, the prosecutor wanted to make sure that she understood everything that was happening, like if she heard me and everything. And she replied, I heard enough. And the judge was like, well, what do you mean you heard enough? Like, you know, you, cause you know, you have to hear everything, you know, it is your child of course and she said i heard enough to know that this boy isn't a good boy and now that didn't that did not i remember that got some reactions and everything for some people in the court but that did not affect me at all you know i knew everything that happened was gonna i knew what was gonna happen like i knew that her fate was already decided, because originally the judge said that that after the whole entire case she would probably come with a verdict out a week after we were done but After the first day of uh, testimony, she said she's not going to wait a week. She'll do it after, like, the very end of the court cases. So, at that point, we already knew that she kind of made up her mind, you know, and I mean, the evidence was damning against her. So, I think the biggest thing that sticks out to me from that uh, court case, two of the biggest things, is Jamie's defendant, given his words and everything like that, why she shouldn't. Get in trouble? Or anything? You don't lose pant rights. Is he walked out onto the, uh, you know, stage? I guess you could say in front of the judge, and he says, "My client is sick." Like, and that's what he said. He, he says, "My client is sick, sick to the brain. She's not a monster. She's just sick. She doesn't know any better. She needs more help." And like, I remember, like, I really had to try my best not to laugh doing that because I was like, uh, I was like, "Well, things aren't looking too good for her if this is the best offense she has." And, uh, I remember seeing in the background, there's some people who came to the, uh, very interested, people who were interested in our case, you know, they came and one of them even laughed a little bit, you know, like not very, but you can still laugh a bit, like, wow, she really is sick, but, you know, she's also a monster too. So they lost parenting rights and that was a very, very, I remember that night we were sitting at the hotel and it was a really nice hotel that Florida paid for. And we were in the hot tubs and the pool and everything. And we were just so excited. You know, we were looking over the beach and everything, the Clearwater Beach. And I've been very excited. It was like, yeah, I went to jail and everything, but the parenting right is the most thing I want. Like, she is no longer legally our parents. When she got arrested, I no longer called her mom. I called her Jamie. I didn't have to call her mom anymore because, you know, she, could, she couldn't hurt us anymore. So, but now I could legally say that she is not our mom anymore. So it was very, very refreshing.
1: The end result of the family court case is that she lost custody of all the children.
6: Yep, yeah.
1: What about when she was criminally charged?
6: Yeah, so the criminal court took a lot longer. That didn't come till uh, years later, 2017. And I'll be, I didn't really know that they were going on, to be honest. I was, I was getting ready to start a semester of school at a university and just kind of finding myself, you know, working where I wanted to. And I didn't really know that the cases were even going on. I thought they were like pre-hearings or something like that. I didn't know that, that there was actually criminal cases going on. Otherwise, I would want I would have wanted to be uh, there. But uh, I remember the night before the verdict and everything like that, my brother called me and he said, hey, did you find out Jamie May only began three years in uh, prison? And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? And I was very upset about that. And so like I called the prosecutor and like I was like, I almost yelled at her a bit a few times. I was angry at her. And she was like, "Well, look, the, I'll be honest, like, your stories don't, some of your stories don't match up. I was like, which one of our stories did not match up? And she's like, your youngest sister's uh, stories did not match up with your guys' stories. So I don't even know if we'll be able to push these uh, charges. I was so angry. I was like, my youngest sister was only two years old. Of course, the stories aren't going to match up. I don't even think she remembers it. And it's so, like, that made me so upset and everything. And there is this person we knew. I refer to her as my sister, but she's not really my, she's not legally my sister, but she's a sister of my brothers. She was dating a lawyer at that time, and the lawyer thought it was the most asinine thing he ever heard. He called the prosecutor as well, and like he was one—he's a really good lawyer. He called the prosecutor as well, and he's like, "What you're doing is like as you could easily give a more than that." And she she got offended that all of us called her the night before, you know, it, and you know, I guess like right, so, you know, it was probably pretty late in Florida because we were calling from a few hours behind, so probably pretty late. But uh, she event it came to agreement that she. would Try to ask the judge to put on another sentence, which was because she asked me what was the biggest thing I wanted from this, and I said I don't want Jamie to have any contact with her siblings at least until the youngest is eighteen, and will she agree to that? And so the judge agreed to that, and so Jamie got Jamie got six years in prison with three years already served because she was in jail slash you know mental hospital for three years, so that counted that counted towards the prison sentencing. But then she also, like when she was released from prison, she was on probation. She couldn't afford anything like that. And at the time, it was 13 years. So now it's only about nine years. But uh, no, yeah, nine years. So for 13 years, she could not contact any of us. She could not even ask about us. She couldn't talk to her family or anything. Nothing she could do could result in her finding even any information about us, even when it was as simple as, you know, asking somebody, how are we doing? Are we doing okay? She could not ask anything any like that. Otherwise she would get 15 years in prison. And that's still being carried out, but it's shorter now because years have passed.
1: So she can't contact any of you for another nine years from now? Is that Yeah. And if she tries to, it's automatically no negotiation. She's back in for 15 years.
6: Yeah. And I so I'm actually in contact with her because I'm pretty good friends with I would even I consider her my aunt, even though she's not really my aunt. She's more of my cousin, but I'm in really good contact with uh, her and everything, and she's very upset at Jamie. She felt betrayed because for the past like years and years and years, she she wanted to ask Jamie like how are her kids doing, you know, because she knew she had kids. She just was very close about it, and she contacted Jamie a few years ago because she went down to Florida to take one of her kids to Florida as a birthday gift, and she decided to contact Jamie. She didn't really. Jamie didn't want to talk too much, but Vernon talked to her because Vernon was pretty close to her family. And at one point, Jamie's cousin brought up, you know, they're doing so much better without you. Like, what you did was horrible. And Jamie got like, J- Jamie immediately shut off and said, you know, we can't talk about her. And, or like, you know, But technically, that didn't go against rules because she didn't ask. And I I told my aunt, it's okay if she talks to her. As long as she doesn't say, you know, like, you know, the younger siblings. But uh, she contacted Jamie to tell her that, like, she was disappointed her more than disappointed her, and that like we were doing so much better than ever without her, and that our lives were so much better without her, and that's something I agree with. So, a hundred percent.
1: When she lost custody of all the kids, you guys were all sent together to live somewhere else, right?
6: Yeah, yeah. So when she lost custody of all of us, yeah, we were all sent together to live with a nice family. This family actually adopted uh, Jamie's older kids before I was even born. So you know what an ironic. We were separated, long-lost siblings, and we all ended up in the same place anyways.
1: And those were siblings you didn't even know prior to that?
6: Yeah, I knew of the oldest one. So, I knew of the oldest one, but I didn't know anything about him. Like, I just remember I remember seeing a letter, and Jamie called him her most prized son, and that she was supposed to bring, like, fortune to the family. And I mean, he was supposed to bring fortune to the family. Like, he was going to be the one who was going to be above us all. And she always talked to us, like, if he was i didn't I had no idea what happened to him because I was like, where well, she talked so highly about this older brother. How come I've never seen him? I don't even know who I've maybe even seen a picture of him. I don't even know who he is, you know, and she would like talk so highly about him, like if she was just if he was really her own kid, but turns out he wasn't, so it was interesting meeting him for the first time.
1: I understand you've also you've been able to contact some sisters, yeah didn't they didn't know about your biological dad or about you,
6: yeah, so how did you find them? there was actually someone who recognized my name because I'm named after my father. And, you know, my last name isn't a common name. And I found out I had some long-lost sisters. I thought I only had one sister. I didn't know I had all so many other siblings. And I tried so hard, but Michael never told me anything about his family. He told me, I remember one day he told me he was going to tell us, but he passed away before he could. But we found out, like, it was so hard. I almost gave up hope. There was a few times I did give up. I was like, well, they find me, they find me. If they don't, they don't. But I found out that, like they were living in the same state as what as I was, and so like I felt like man, I'm so close, but I'm, yet at the same time, I'm so far. I don't know anything about them until eventually I found one of Michael's ex-wife, and she told me the birthdays, but she didn't know what their names were. And I was like, okay, so I was like, well, at least I know the birthdays. I can start with that. And after a lot of research, it was definitely not easy. I found out that Michael was married to two women at the same time and not necessarily cheating on them because they knew he was married to another woman, so they lived all together. Uh, He wasn't like a polygamist or anything, it's just something that he did, so. I got into contact with one of the adoptive uncles, I guess you could say, and I talked to uh, him and then he gave me their information eventually, it took a while, but he gave me the information eventually and I contacted my sister and I was like, "Hey, I think you're my sister. And, you know, of course, you know, when some random person comes and says, hey, I think you're my sister or something like that, you know, there's some disbelief going on there. So, you know, I started explaining, I was like, your father would be this person. And she, like, she, like, we eventually called and she saw letters of her father, but she had no idea who she was because her family wouldn't tell her anything about where she came from. So, she only saw letters where her biological mother talked to Michael, but she didn't know who Michael was. And she didn't even know who her own, there were stories about her biological mother that even she didn't know that. I found out while searching for her and then when I found her I found another sister and because thanks to that sister we eventually found a older brother and with that brother's help we found another sister and another brother and so it was ironic that we all ended up in the same state.
1: That's incredible. You've got a whole new family.
6: Yeah. A lot.
1: Would you ever contact Jamie again?
6: Well, so I do have a number and I mean I doubt she'll ever hear this podcast, but if she hears it then oh well. I do have her number. I have not contacted her and I don't know if I ever would contact her. I'm I'm heated. I like I'm really conflicted. Like I wanna confront her and tell her what happens, but I talked to my twin about it. He's the only one who knows her number as well because I shared it with him. You know, and, and he said he doesn't think that, you know, he would ever contact her because he thinks that in her mind she really does believe that like we deserved it. And I definitely agree with him. I I think that she has lied to herself so much that she truly believes these lies that what she did was not wrong. So, you know, sometimes I wonder if I really did try to confront her, would I even get anything from it? Or would it just make me angry and bring her back into my life, you know? And the last thing I want is I don't want her to think that I'm contacting her just because I miss her. I, by no means do I miss her. I don't, I, I don't ever want her in my life. It brings me happiness to know that she will never have her kids in her life again but that's i don't know you know maybe one day i will i one day i might you know i just don't know when if
1: i will have you forgiven her
6: when i first left jamie i was so open with happiness i thought i did forgive her and i was like oh yeah i forgive her you know i uh, i don't want any ill harm upon her and i remember telling the cops i said i said yeah i forgive her and i don't want any harm to come towards but i just don't ever want to be with her again and however as i grew older you know especially during my final year like in high school and everything, you know, I really started to find myself, like, and you know, some people might wonder what that means. Like, like I, I really sort of became mature and everything like that. I, I started to understand things so much more clearly now and everything. You know, I started living, you know, having so much social interaction that, you know, I started to learn and all this stuff. And, you know, it just started making me more and more angrier as I uh, started thinking of her. And like, I realized I just cannot forgive her for what she did, especially to my uh, brother's the toughest memories I have of living with Jamie is not what she did to me, but it's what she did to my brothers. And it, it makes me so angry sometimes, like it makes me heated. Like there's times I have to tell myself to calm down because I don't want to do anything irrational. It just makes me so angry and I can't forgive her. And I come to the fact that, you know, um, I remember I was talking to Jamie's parents because I have a relatively okay, I have a relatively good relationship with them. It's a lot better now than it was before. but. I remember the first time I talked to them a few years ago, I told them I did forgive Jamie, but then I just couldn't live with that. And I uh, called them, it was about a few months ago, I called them, and I said, look, I don't forgive Jamie. I know she's your daughter, but I do not like her. And I hate, I almost hate her. Like, you know, uh, I try not to hate people, but like, it's like, I just can't forgive her. What she did was horrible. I don't know how you can do that, mental illness or not. I don't know how you can do that and think it's okay. Like, I don't know how you can look at your kid who's only like, A year old and say, Get this thing off of me and then throw them against a bookshelf. It's like, I just cannot. I don't know how you can keep doing that if your kid begs you, like, after your kid begs you not to do that and say, Mommy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mommy, even though they did nothing. I don't know how you can do that. So I just can't forgive. And I come to, I come with peace of mind. I think I'll forgive her when she dies, like, passes away. And I don't, I don't want someone to murder her or anything like that. But you know, when she passes away, I think I'll be able to forgive her because whatever happens to her after that, well, that's not up to me.
1: How's your life today?
6: Life is really good today. I'm married now to a very beautiful young woman, and i really got to explore uh, at least the country, not so much the world. I I want to do that, you know. But I've really got to explore uh, the country, and uh, I I had I've worked a lot of jobs because you know I'm just not really too sure exactly what I want to do. I have an idea of what I want to do, but you know, not too much. But uh, it's very exciting. Every day I wake up and uh, I'm pretty excited to be honest. I have good friends, very good friends. I'm very close with my brothers and sisters, including the long lost ones and Jamie is more of just a bad memory at this point. There's nothing more like it doesn't affect my life too much anymore.
1: Do you have any like lingering trauma or maybe p t s d yeah like in certain situations
6: i have p t s d and it used to be very bad. It used to be like really bad uh if someone came to give me a high five even like even if you we were just like sitting next to each other and like they put their hand on my lap, like I would, f- like I would flinch in like fear. And it was just PTSD or like there'd be sometimes where I would wake up in the middle of the night and yell, yes ma'am. Cause that's something, you know, we had to say all the time to Jamie. It was yes ma'am, no ma'am. And like I would just yell, yes ma'am in the middle of the night. And I'd be like, man, why the heck did I just do that? Or like very bad dreams. When I first saw Jamie, my dreams were more of her being a monster. Like it was like her, you know, like in a haunted house type of thing, you know, and like she'd be trying to lure us inside, beating us. And, you know, that was what my dreams used to be. And now these days when I do have dreams of her, it's mostly it's her getting custody of my youngest siblings again and pretending to be nice. And I always tell her in these dreams, I always tell her, I'm going to watch you 24-7. I'm going to get these kids taken away from you Can you do not deserve this. I know you're really bad. And my PTSD is so much better now. It's, It's so much better now than it used to be.
1: Is that from because of therapy?
6: Yeah, therapy and just, you know, time heals, you know. Eventually, you know, you learn to live a normal life and uh, things get
1: better. And I understand you're possibly considering writing a book about your your childhood.
6: Yeah, I want to write a book. I've had a few people actually offer to help me write a book. Many people. I would love to, but just quite frankly, what, uh, what happens in my brain doesn't really come real to the papers. I just get carried away and I'm not. I'm just not the best writer, to be honest, so... But I've had people run into ghostwrite for me, and I think I'll take them up one day. I don't know if right now is the right time to do it, but one day soon I want to do it. So,
1: If you do, let me know, and I'll let mm-hmm. my audience know, because I know after after hearing your story here on the podcast, they would love to read uh, anything that you would write yeah. and, and and hear that you're doing better. Yeah. Well, Michael, I'm really sorry that you had to go through all that. No child, no no human should ever go through any of that. But I appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing your story.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me. I, want, I like to share my story. I want people to learn.
1: After hearing Michael's story and how that horrific situation went on for so long without anyone noticing anything, I think this is a good opportunity to say this. If you observe any kind of situation that seems suspicious and you suspect that a child is being abused or is in danger contact the authorities here in florida it's the department of children and families dcf the agency may have a different name in other states and hopefully listeners outside the u.s also have a way to report a dangerous situation you might just save a child's life and you know what i love to do I love to talk with you. You're a listener of this podcast. That means we have something big in common. You and I both love to hear a heartfelt, true, firsthand story. It might be a really difficult one, like Michael's story that we heard today, or it could be a happy one. But whether it's a story of tragedy or joy, hearing someone relate that firsthand experience is something I never get tired of. And I know you're the same way. That's why I love talking with and engaging with the listeners of this podcast. The easiest way I've found to do that is through our podcast Facebook group. In that group, we have roughly 1,500 people. And yes, the big thing that brings us all together is this podcast, but you should see some of the discussions we have in there. We have a lot more in common than just this show. If you'd like to join us over there, just go to whatwasthatlike.com Facebook. The conversations there are fun and intelligent, so you'll be in good company. And I also post on Instagram a few times a week. I'm always coming across weird things or something that's just amazing, and that's where I put it. My Instagram account there has over 10,000 followers, and I invite you to do that as well. And here's a little heads up. Anyone who follows me on Instagram gets a message from me Asking if you have any crazy stories that would be a good fit for the podcast. Because I'm always looking for new guests and new stories. My Instagram handle is What Was That Like. I'm also working on a couple of bonus episodes. These would be episodes that are in a different format. Not really the interview style that I do every other Friday. So hopefully I'll be able to get those out in the next few months. And if you made it this far, almost to the end of the show, thank you. I appreciate you and the fact that you listen to the podcast. And if you really like it, you're invited to support the show. That means you get ad-free episodes and you get some bling from me and you get access to all the bonus raw audio episodes that are only available to supporters for five bucks a month. You can sign up for this at whatwasthatlike.com support. And if you want to contact me, you can do that through the website or by regular mail at P.O. Box 5, Safety Harbor, Florida, 34695. And now here's this week's listener story. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.
2: So about 20 years ago, I was working as a security guard in the mall. Funny thing is, I wasn't even supposed to work that night. I was covering for someone. Uh, I got a call over the radio saying that a female fainted in the restroom. So I ran towards the restroom. I ran down the corridor. And when I opened the restroom door, I didn't see anybody, but I heard somebody crying. I walked into the restroom and I I looked under the stalls and I saw somebody sitting on the floor in the handicapped stall. So I introduced myself. I knocked on the door. Um, I told her I was going to come in. I told her I was security. The door was locked, so I did have to crawl under the door. And when I crawled under the door to unlock it, when I stood up, we were both facing each other, and I stood up to her, pointing a gun at my head, at my forehead. And um, she was just crying, and my radio kept going off. I kept telling her that I could help her. And it just must have been a minute, but it felt like a lifetime. And she just kept crying. And the last thing I said to her was, I can help you. And she just said, you can't help me. She took the gun, pointed it to the side of her head, and shot herself. She fell back, landed between the little crack between the the toilet and the wall. And half of her head was missing. She was still gasping for air. I was a 20-year-old kid that had no idea what to do. I ran out of the restroom, freaking out. One of my good friends was working with me at the time. He ran down the corridor. I just held him, and I told him not to go in. And long story short, what happened with this lady, she was a 20, uh, 24-year-old female, had just lost custody of her kids, and decided to end it all. I was trying to get into law enforcement at the time, and after seeing that, I just I couldn't do it because I thought I still see her struggling and breathing for air i mean what did i know i I just figured i can't help her and i was pretty lost after that just completely took a different career path that's my story
3: hey have you ever used cheapo air
4: for years and i really like it